on almost every measure, social, academic, and health, boys and men are faring much worse than girls and women. Our guest today is going to highlight what's going on and share ideas about how to make changes. As Mother's Day is coming around, I find I'm missing my mom more and more. And there's always questions and stories I wish I had asked her when she was still here. I do remember that I gave her a book once upon a time with questions for her to write the answers to and bless her heart, she didn't answer very many. So that was really a disappointment. But fast forward to now and technology. And now we have mylifeinabook.com. It takes all those questions and stories and it puts it in a format that is sent to your person, whoever you designate, on a regular basis so that the prompts come, they're easily answered either written or voice to text, and they're captured by mylifeinabook.com. These family stories, this legacy that you want to leave for your children and your grandchildren, mylifeinabook.com, create an unforgettable gift for your mom, your dad, your children this Mother's Day. Use our coupon code ONBOYS for 10% off. Go to mylifeinabook.com and use ONBOYS for 10% off. Create that legacy. Carry on those stories. This is the ONBOYS Parenting Podcast. We are your co-hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net and Janet Allison of boysalive.com. Thanks for being our listeners. And as always, we appreciate you supporting our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by Jen's very own Building Boys Bulletin. This is an email that comes to your inbox every Monday morning. She highlights the latest in news and information that you need to know about boys and men. Go to buildingboys.net, click the subscribe button, and get that email in your inbox every Monday. It's the first one I open, Building Boys Bulletin. Go to buildingboys.net, click that subscribe button. Doing more for boys and men does not require an abandonment of the ideal of gender equality. In fact, it is a natural extension of that. Those words are from a new book of boys and men, why the modern male is struggling, why it matters, and what to do about it. By Richard Reeves, a fellow at the Brookings Institute, a a public policy organization based in DC, and a father of three grown sons. If you are a longtime On Boys listener, you know that Janet and I are staunch advocates of gender equality. We don't want any human left behind or limited because of their gender. But in 2022, as much as we are talking about gender, saying we need to do more for boys and men can seem controversial. It stirs up conversation. And you know us, we are eager to dig in and talk about that. So joining us today is author Richard Reeves to talk about his book. Thank you for joining us, Richard. 
Well, thank you both for having me on. I'm looking forward to this. First off, I have to ask, three sons, how old are they at this point? Well, it changes all the time. Uh, I'm pretty sure, as someone once <laughs> said, that's the trouble with it. Uh, 26, 22, and 20. All so right. All, I have no teenagers left. Oh, I'm, I'm not quite there yet. I have uh, a 24-year-old, 22, 19 and a 16-year-old who I have to go pick up at high school for an appointment after this. I'm like, can't you just be an independent human yet? Like, Well, no, because of the prefrontal cortex development, which we'll get into maybe. <laughs> there is, okay, there is that. There is that. And trust me, uh, Janet knows this. Our listeners know this. I am waiting on some more prefrontal cortex development for some of my other guys as well yet. It's, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It takes time. It does. You start your book by pointing out the facts and it's not controversial. It's not even debatable. Uh, you lay them out there on almost every measure, academic, um, work, health, boys and men are generally faring worse than girls and women. That doesn't surprise me, but that's because I have been doing this for 20 plus years and raising boys in this context. And it doesn't surprise a lot of our listeners who, if anything, feel some relief going, thank God it's not just me mm. and my family. But how do we get people to pay attention to this fact? I feel like my hope is that your book will be part of this push to get larger attention and more people looking at this going, huh, this is wrong. Yeah, well, I, I think you touched on it in the intro, Jennifer, which is this ability to think two thoughts at once and to and just avoid these zero-sum game trade-offs that were constantly being presented with. You know, I consider myself a, a lifelong feminist in the sense of wanting equal opportunities for, for men and women, uh, being an equal partner and raising our kids and so on too. And, and I think the trick here is to just avoid the sense that it's one or the other that we have to choose between saying there's a war on men and boys, the women have taken over, feminism's over, there's nothing, there are no challenges left for girls and women, and then choosing the opposite, which is to say that because there are still challenges facing many girls and women, that means we, we, we cannot accept the fact that there could be some problems and growing problems in many cases that now face boys and men. I actually think one of the great triumphs of the women's movement by helping so many girls and women to just be in a completely different place to where most were even a generation ago has been to allow us that conversation is to allow us to have the conversation about boys and men without having to abandon any commitment to gender equality in fact that's really what i think the movement at its best is about it's about equality and so what that means is that you take equal inequalities in either direction seriously um, rather than being forced to sort of blind yourself to one or the other. And in the current debate, it's almost like everyone has to like cover one of their eyes. You know, everyone has mm -hmm. an eye patch on. It's like, I only see the problems facing girls and women if I'm just typically on the political left. And then on the other side, it's like, well, I'm only going to see the problems facing boys and men. And the rest of us are looking at the world through both eyes and seeing that both of those things can be true at once. And that's really what I, I that's really what I hope we can we can get into. I, I hope we can get into that conversation now. And I feel a bit more hopeful about that now than perhaps I did even two or three years ago when I started writing the book, notwithstanding some of the current political issues. I just think in the culture, there really is an, a, an appetite for some of this conversation now. 
having worked on this book, I know it takes years. This book didn't just happen. You know, you thought about it and boom, a month later, the book is almost on sale, <laughs> right? Um, as you've worked on this, and you've had conversations with people over this period of time, what fact or statistics have you found is kind of most helpful in helping people understand what's really going on with boys specifically right now? Well, there's a couple I would really point to. I think the education ones really do, I think, stop can stop people in their tracks. I think it's important to know, for example, that the gender gap in getting a college degree is wider today. It's about 15 percentage points now. Girls, young women, 15 percentage points ahead of boys in getting a four-year college degree than it was in 1972 when Title IX was passed, specifically to help women and girls, when it was 13 percentage points. So in other words, the gender inequality that Title IX was intended to tackle is now larger, but completely flipped the other way, which honestly nobody expected. No one planned for that. And I, and I think we're all suffering from whiplash because it's just, you know, that the pace of that change has been so great. We have all these organizations that are set up to fight for women and girls in education, many of which started in the 70s, National Coalition of Women and Girls in Education, the Association for uh, University American Women, and so on. And those are great organizations doing great work, but there are no equivalents on the other side because <laughs> no one thought we were going to need them. So that's one, I think, a bigger gender gap now than in 72. And then the other one really speaks to the employment part of this, which is that most American men today are earning less than most American men were in 1979. So if, if American men were a nation and we were measuring them in terms of earnings, it's a poorer nation today than it was 43 years ago. That's an astonishing economic fact. And the US is actually something is really one of the worst in terms of that. And the reason that's important is because it speaks to the fact that that's most men, right? Not all men. The right. men at the top of the pile are doing, like me, are doing pretty well. <laughs> right. know, our wage, our earnings are higher than the men were at the top because income inequality has increased so much. Meanwhile, women at the top are also doing incredibly well by comparison to women of the past and very often marrying or forming households with those men. Right. Uh, which drives inequality. So, but I think the fact that kind of we've seen this actually that actually American men have gone backwards overall in the labor market, and that there's a bigger gender gap in education now than there was in '72, and then of course there are huge gaps in high school and uh, and everywhere else, and and just really trying to get at that those fundamental facts, and then of course there are the numbers around fatherhood too, which are. Uh, I think are pretty well known, which is the number of fathers who are not not in touch with their children anymore is important. You know, even having been in this space over the last two decades plus, it was still shocking for me to see, you laid it out so clearly, the gender gap is greater now than it was when we decided, hey, we have to do something about that. Even though I knew that, that women were overtaking um, males in terms of college graduation, that was that's a stark fact. And when you lay out those two side by side like that, it helps me as a mom of teenagers and young adults, I realize some of the difficulty that I have helping my young men navigate this time too, because I have boys, young men who are growing up right now, and they hear the term, you know, wage gap, and women only earn so many cents on the dollar for men. And they're like, <laughs> because of what you shared, which is that for a lot of men, they've actually gone backwards in the last few decades. And so 
my boys are coming up at a time where they're experiencing this reality and they need me and others to help them understand the context of how quickly some of this has changed. Yeah, uh, particularly in education, the speed of change has been very rapid. But but even in the labor market, really, we've seen a, a transformation. And, and it's back to what, what we, were, we were a moment ago of thinking two thoughts at once. You know, it's there is still a gender pay gap mm-hmm. uh, at, the, at the median, which is now actually largely a parenting gap. It's mostly about the, the unequal division of labor around child rearing. That's really where that's where most of the cause comes from, which we could we could talk about if you like, but it's not really discrimination as such. But if you look at women's wages, uh, in 1979, only 13% of women earned more than the average man. By average, I mean, I'm using median, the one in the middle. So, mm-hmm. so only 13% were, would be in the top half of male distribution. It's now 40%. 40% of women now earn more than the typical man. Now, that's not 50, that's not 50%. Right, full equality, which would require a restructuring of parenting responsibilities above all, would get fifty percent. But thirteen to forty is a big jump, and what it means yeah. there are a lot of women out there earning quite a lot more than a lot of men. And then you add race and class to it, and the picture really, really opens up. Upper middle class women, white women, women with college degrees uh, are all doing pretty well. I mean, it's it's also important to note that white women now out earn black men by as much as men out earn women. It's 84 cents on the dollar for black men versus white women. White women overtook black men sometime in the 1990s and have just have never looked back. And so it's really important to cut across these, these, these dimensions by class and by race and by geography too. So one of the lines I have in the book is that for particularly for elite people like, like me and for a lot of the women that I typically will work and that we look around us and we don't see the same problems. And mm-hmm. so with apologies to Sheryl Sandberg, we might be so busy leaning in mm-hmm. that we're not looking that we're not looking down. And down there, the world is very, very different indeed, yeah. especially for working class and black men. And it's so as you're talking about this, I, I'm just realizing like the the notion is so entrenched in us. I'm in my 60s, Jen's in her. 50s. And I mean, we grew up with this notion of this inequality and women don't earn as much as men. We have to just do a whole mind shift of, oh, wait a minute, it, it has changed in the world. And whew, it's it's going to take some time to kind of catch up with that and realize, oh, it's not like I was raised that with that notion of earning less. Oh, wait, we are earning more. Oh, Big change. Yeah. It's it's actually, I think, and I have a lot of sympathy for this position because uh, I think it is very difficult to update your mental model yep. for success at this scale and at this pace. I mean, as yeah. you say, Janet, it's a generation. I mean, just like the yeah. difference between my father and, and my generation. Mm-hmm. And again, it's not as if those problems have gone away. So in, in the room next to me, I have, you know, my, my wife is trying to raise money um, for a business startup. So I happen to know that only 3% of venture capital money goes to female founders. 3%. Okay. Wow. On, only one in four of our members of Congress are women. The US has never had a female president. Only 44 of the, of the Fortune 500 companies are led by a woman, which is a lot more than zero, which is what it was mm-hmm. 20 years ago. I mean, I'd say that's an inf- infinite improvement, but but it's still 
pretty low. And so, uh, and there are many other things we could list off, but it's, it's not as if there aren't these remaining barriers that we have to tackle on behalf of women. There really, really are. It's just that we have to be more strategic and we have to see like, where are the big ones now for women and for women and girls that remain? Uh, mm -hmm. But where are these other ones now for boys and men? And to be able to think on those twin tracks and it, essentially just to be in favor of gender equality. Yeah. I think that's, I don't think it's that difficult a proposition intellectually. I just think it's difficult psychologically, honestly. Mm -hmm. It's difficult psychologically. And, you know, you point out in your book, and we alluded to it already. We are living in a time where it's almost like you're supposed to pick a side and stay on your side. And what you're saying is a lot of things can be true at once. And socially, uh, personally, psychologically, economically, we will do better if we can, instead of just picking a side and, and staying in that lane, like look around. Okay. There's this problem. We can pay attention to that. And then there's this problem. We can pay attention to that. And there's interrelated ones and that's okay. It can be hard to do in the, in the context of life. And one of the things that I love about your book, and I'm, I highly recommend this for all of our listeners, because it's very middle of the road. You lay out the facts and then you also lay out, here's what the political left tends to get wrong in their thinking about boys and men. Here's what the political right tends to get wrong in their thinking about boys and men. Here's the middle. So few people are talking about the middle these days. Can you recap some of those uh, mistakes in thinking that actually all of us make at, at, at a certain point? Um, what are some of the mistakes that are permeating our perception of and thinking about boys and men's issues right now? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? How just calling it as you see it and trying to lay out the facts as as fairly uh, and as authoritatively as I can, and as I must, as a Brookings scholar, means you're in the middle. Mm -hmm. I mean, it almost inevitably puts you in the middle because of the partisanship we see now on, on both sides, which is as much indicated by what people don't say as much as by what they do say. Yeah. So I think on the left, it's actually, there are two big issues. One is the silence. So there's no gender inequalities that affect boys and men. And there is now a gender equality council in the White House. And a lot of us were quite encouraged by the new name because it was previously called the Women and Girls Council. Uh, and so this did suggest that perhaps it was going to pick up some of these issues, particularly facing black boys in school, for example, or some of the education gaps we've just mentioned. But uh, it's ignored. It, it doesn't mention those at all. It's entirely asymmetric. And I, I think that's a huge missed opportunity. So there's, mm -hmm. there's that sort of just a silence. And then mm -hmm. if you talk to people in government, they'll say, oh, of course, we care about these issues of boys and men. But they never say anything about it. They don't have any right. strategies. So, so, you know, you have to believe what, what people say in public rather than private. And the second problem is that I do think there's been a tendency, mostly on the left, to pathologize masculinity in some cases. I think that the term toxic masculinity, which used to have a reasonably strict definition in sort of obscure academic journals, has just broke out into the mainstream in 2016 for understandable mm -hmm. reasons with Me Too and Donald Trump and so on. But it's now just being used indiscriminately. And, and all the evidence is that it really does turn boys and men away. Uh, from the conversation it, it actually makes them feel like there's something inherently wrong with them like they're, they're, there's an evil spirit inside them that will have to be exorcised on the left and, and and it's not to say that there aren't issues around masculinity that we we have to become mature men and we have to learn how to handle it it's not to suggest that at all but but talk, saying it's toxic uh, and then trying to identify which the non-toxic bits are to a 16 year old I mean you've just lost them off the bat well so that's with, a big problem too even without the term 
I think our listeners, many of them are familiar with this concept of pathologizing masculinity and boyness because we have seen people treat in many cases, our son's behavior as problematic when it's like, yeah, he is having a hard time sitting still because you've just asked my five-year-old to sit still for 30 minutes. That's not what he does. Yeah. And one of the, one of the other facts that, that struck me when I came across it, and one of these facts you have to triple check, you know, was that one in four boys are now described as having a developmental disability. Ugh. And that's the point where you just think, really? Are you sure that isn't the education institutions? Are you sure that isn't the way we're thinking about boyhood and so on too? And, and I agree. And I've been really encouraged by, you know, friends and women that have said, look, this is, it's really important that we don't pathologize some of these traits, which on average are typically more associated with girls and boys. Again, you know, if we could just say on average, the yes. distributions overlap. But again, one of these problems in the debate is that you can't even talk about differences on average with overlapping distributions, right? <laughs> because it's either there are no differences at all, or they're only socialized. So the differences in aggression, for example, or risk taking, mm -hmm. they're all socialized. That is nonsense. But it's also nonsense to suggest that culture and nurture and society don't hugely influence the way that those are expressed or not expressed. Otherwise, how do we explain the massive differences in crime rates over time and between countries, for example? I mean, massive decline in violent crime uh, in recent decades, which is hugely a positive development. But, you know, men's DNA didn't change. Their mm -hmm. hormonal systems didn't change. They didn't start producing less testosterone. Actually, they, they might have started producing they a little bit. They did a little bit. A little, <laughs> a little bit, bit but, but not enough to halve the violent <laughs> crime rate. Right. So they're like, okay, so what that tells us is like, it's, it's, it's not nature or nurture, it's nature and nurture. Yes. And in some ways, I think that understanding some of these naturally occurring differences makes nurture and culture even more important mm -hmm. because that's how we learn how to manage and moderate and express positively some of these traits that's what culture does mm -hmm. it takes us as sort of biological natural creatures then it helps us to become mature citizens of a society and so this the, the false polarity again between nature and nurture i think is just really unhelpful and when you see such differences in aggression for example in 17 month old like not 17 year old but 17 month old and it gets wider i just don't buy that that's all socialization at 17 months this episode is sponsored by by heart Babies need to eat. And whether you breastfeed or bottle feed, use formula, combine all of the above, you need options. We wanted to let you know about Byheart Baby Formula. Byheart has a patented protein blend that gets the closest to breast milk. It includes two of the most abundant proteins in breast milk. And Byheart actually ran a clinical trial comparing their formula to a leading infant formula and proved that babies on Byheart have softer poops, less spit up, and easier digestion. Byheart is also the only US-made infant formula to use organic, grass-fed whole milk. So if you need baby formula for your baby, consider Byheart. New customers can get 10% off your first order by using code ONBOYS at byheart.com. That's B-Y- H-E-A-R-T dot com slash podcast. And it is 10% off your first order. Byheart.com slash podcast. This is a limited time offer and additional terms and conditions may apply. 
We all know that vitamins can help fill nutritional gaps in our diet. But a lot of us don't like to take vitamins because we don't like swallowing pills. How do you feel about that, Janet? There's some days that I look at my vitamins and go, yeah, I should take those. I'll do it later. But I'll tell you what's changed. I have gotten Easy Melt vitamins. I have the D3 and I have the B12s and a multivitamin and I just pop them in my mouth and they dissolve and I don't have to think about swallowing a vitamin. Yeah, and you don't necessarily need water either to have on hand to get this big vitamin now. Yeah, no, and they taste good and they're sugar-free. They melt quickly. The reason they melt is because of plants, not chemicals. Ah, plant-based nutrition. For a limited time only, you can receive a free, free three-month supply of Easy Melt Vitamin D3 with your first purchase. To claim your free D3, visit try.easymelts.com slash onboys. That's try, T-R-Y dot Easy Melts, E-Z-M-E-L-T-S dot com forward slash on boys. So there yeah. are some real differences there. and denying those real differences doesn't help boys because it pathologizes no. them. It doesn't help girls because it doesn't mean we create norms and structures to help boys and girls to negotiate those differences and for mm -hmm. boys to understand and manage those differences without them being told that they're toxic. That's yeah. the trick. Yeah. I, as a, as a veteran teacher, I'm very interested in your solutions, radical solution for helping boys in school. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, you see, at this point, Janet, I, I see it as incremental rather than radical, but that's because I've been <laughs> thinking about this for too long. And the, the, the basic story for me here is that the reason girls and women are doing better in school and in college, the main reason, I should say, is because they mature much earlier than boys. So in mm -hmm. crucial areas of, of maturity and brain development, they're just way ahead of boys, especially in adolescence. And so we're, we're talking earlier about the prefrontal cortex, organization, planfulness, thinking ahead, deferring gratification, <laughs> taking fewer risks, all that stuff that adolescents struggle with, but adolescent boys much more than girls. And they're about, mm -hmm. honestly, they're about two years behind girls at the age of 15, 16. And I have had three boys. And I got to tell you, when they bring their, brought their female friends home, during that age period it wow. wasn't like yeah i mean yeah there's they're different right as as a female <laughs> one of my most interesting things parenting teenage boys has been actually getting to know you know 14 15 16 year old boys spending time with them knowing what they're thinking about talking about and then remembering me at 16 you know, thinking about the boys and wondering what they're thinking. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> it was way off base. <laughs> oh yeah, you didn't. I mean, it's good you didn't know. Probably. Uh, I oh mean, my just gosh. The, they're not just like a different sex. They're like a different species. Mm -hmm. Honestly, at that point, uh, I mean, I just um, Margaret Mead, the anthropologist, said something like, "If you walked into a class, I think it was ninth graders uh, of boys and girls, you'd think you're walking into a, a room of young women and boys." Yes, um, and uh, and, and there's, part of that is referring to, to physical differences because girls mm -hmm. hit puberty so much earlier. But but importantly, for my argument, it's just these, this maturation. And so what that means is in these critical education years, right at the beginning 
Janet, what what grade did you teach, Janet? Just out of interest. Um, I taught first through fifth. Okay, so yep. you'd have seen that there's, there's a big gap right at the beginning. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's another big gap again in adolescence. I mean, there's a gap all the way through, um, but those seem to me to be where these big gaps occur. Mm-hmm. So what that means is the education system is actually structured in favor of girls. Right. You know, right. accidentally, inadvertently. I mean, and for no, one so planned, many... no one planned it that way. It's just how it turned out. And we now can see it because girls are now going on to college, women are going on to college the structural advantage they have in an education system that treats 16 year old girls and boys as if they were the same is becoming apparent we couldn't see it before because sexism was holding Mm -hmm. girls down girls back now that we've taken those barriers off you're seeing girls flying and the structural advantages they face in the education system because bluntly they have a prefrontal cortex at 16 Mm -hmm. and boys don't means that they're just going to do better period so my proposal the radical proposal is start boys in year of school later just give them, give them, a, you know, give them an extra a red shirt. I, all the boys start yeah. a year later. Let I, I think it would level the playing field, honestly. I have advocated for that for years. That that's oh. that's what we need to do. Our boys need that extra year. You know, we talk about a gap year at the end of high school. Mm. The gap year needs to be between kindergarten and first grade. I feel it needs to be at the beginning for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some people that advocate yes, doing it later. I mean, there are at the end of high school, some like before high school. Uh, the problem is by then, I think this sense of like being behind has already yes. really come locked in for a lot of boys. And so mm-hmm. yep. we, and actually, well, I've discovered, I've done some reporting on this for my Atlantic article, uh, which is titled Red Shirt, All the Boys. Private schools are doing it a lot, mm. um, but public schools much less so. And some public schools are actually forbidding it now, New York and Chicago, because of the worries about equity, because it's tends to be more affluent, more white families that are doing it. But actually the Mm -hmm. kids who would benefit most, the boys who would benefit most are those from lower income families. And meanwhile, we have an education system where one in four black boys repeat a grade before the end of high school. And that is not because they're being redshirted at the beginning. It's because they're being held back a grade. The social and educational consequences of being held back a grade are catastrophic huge. and so well, let's deal with that problem at the outset by recognizing these differences and again it's these are just facts for all the arguments there are about the differences between male and female brains in adulthood and for what it's worth both sides as usual overstate their overstate their case um, about male and female brains where there is no controversy at all is in the pace of that yes. brain development nobody nobody denies that there's a different pace and yet our education system simply ignores that basic biological fact. And I think we're seeing the results now. You know, you said nobody denies that there's a different pace, but I have found that many people are um, innocently ignorant of that fact. I just recently finished a book. It's not out yet, but um, it's building boys, raising great guys in a world that misunderstands males. And Mm. people ask, well, what do they misunderstand about males? I think one of the biggest things is that there is this difference in pace. Yes, as adults, we get to more or less the same place. There's certainly right. individual differences in you know, our brains and how we think, and that's, that's beautiful. But the pace of how we get there is different. And for so many parents of boys, you don't really know that, but you kind of begin to experience it so often it is when your son starts school. And it ends up being the boys who are struggling, who are getting in trouble, who are having a hard time with reading and writing because their brains aren't developmentally there yet. Another two years, they can get there easily, but they're not there yet. 
so I've been personally thinking about this for a long time. I held, held back, waited with my second son, who was an August birthday, homeschooled the other kids for a while. So it didn't really matter who was where, when, but even with all of that, just to read on the page, simple solution, wait a year for boys. I'm like, this is brilliant. <laughs> this is brilliant. And it shouldn't be that hard. And yet, you know, you mentioned a bit ago that generally it's more affluent in white families who are waiting an extra year mm-hmm. with their sons. Mm-hmm. And the dull moment is, of course, because for so many of us Americans, school is childcare. Yeah, that's a big problem. Uh, and it means that you can afford to do it. In fact, right. one of the one of the private schools, I can't name them, but they gave me their data. They gave me the birth dates for their graduating seniors. Um, so it doesn't tell me when the waiting happened. It could have been at any point. Um, sure. 20, 20% of the boys were, I think it's 25% of the boys were old for their year. So they were older than they quote should have been. In other words, they were beyond the cutoff, mm-hmm. right? Compared to very few of the girls. And so, in the, and actually, I you know was reported on this. Private schools are very often suggesting to parents that they hold them back. But of course, for those parents, if they can afford private school, they can afford the childcare. And so, I do think that my proposal to give the boys an extra year has to be combined with something along the lines of what Janet was just suggesting, which is an extra pre-K year. In fact, some private schools have this. They have a mm. you, you have some special some special name for it, but like pre-K plus one or K plus one or readiness class or something. Um, so that particularly for low-income parents, it doesn't increase the childcare burden on them um, because those are the parents whose boys will benefit the most uh, from this uh, from this additional year. But it's interesting, Jennifer, this parents realizing it, and then what they do is they compensate for it. What they do is, I had this great story from a colleague of mine, Camille Bousset, who sat down with her son when he started high school, and she said, the high school assumes that you have a prefrontal cortex. I know that you don't. So I am going to be your pre. And she had, she had, she's a Brookings scholar. So she had like brain scan maps and talked him through it. She probably had PowerPoint slides for all I know. And she said, you don't have one. So I'm going to have to be it for the next four years. I'm going to be your stand in prefrontal cortex through high school. And she is. And I think lots of parents with means and knowledge and motivation are actually compensating for those weaknesses in their own boys, which is why the education gaps are not as big at the top of the distribution as they are at the bottom. That's what I think. It's very hard to prove this, but but the, you know, the education gaps get bigger and bigger as you go further down. And I think that parents with means are actually basically making compensating investments in their boys. They're helping them with their homework. They're making sure that they're on, they're riding them. They're getting tutors if they can afford it. They're, they're really piling in investments. And that means that they're basically propping up the boys who would otherwise be doing as badly, whereas for poorer parents, of course, that's much less, much less possible. It's really interesting, too, because I can see how it seems a necessary crutch at the time in the same way, you know, my kid has, I don't know, Janet, say a broken collarbone. I have two with broken collarbones right now, Richard. Really, right now. Wow. Yes. At the moment, dirt biking incidences, both separately, yes, sounds, but yeah, sounds like uh, it. You know, so they can't do certain things. So I am helping them with those things right now. They are unable. I help them. But at a certain point, we're not allowing kids to develop and make the mistakes that would lead to the full development of the prefrontal cortex. So there's potentially issues with, you know, serving as their prefrontal cortex instead of letting them continue to develop at their pace. There's 
there's risks I, all around. I don't, yeah, I'm not so worried about that, honestly, because okay. my, I mean, of course, like you have to develop skills around independence uh, and you have to, uh, consequences have to flow. But having sort of really battled with my own sons around this and, and you know, as I've been learning this, I now look, I now look back actually and realize that I was just really not sympathetic enough. Uh, you know, I did think that they just didn't care or they were lazy, all the stuff that we all fall into the trap of. But now it's become clear to me that this just, you know, this just is neuroscience. Uh, and it is just a waiting game. It, you know, it is just, they just, these brain synapses just need to develop, right? And they will, um, but they won't develop any more slowly just because we're helping them turn their homework in. There's no evidence that that will delay their neurological development. I, so I think it's actually just important to kind of compensate for it uh, in the meantime and recognize that that's just to some extent a fact of life. Again, it's not true for all boys and it is true for some girls, these distributions that overlap, right. but there's a big average difference. Listeners, I want to draw attention to what he said, that in hindsight, I wasn't sympathetic enough. It is so easy. And I fall into this too, you know, in the heat of parenting, in dealing with these growing children. And it takes a long time. Adolescence is a very long time when you are the parent living through it. And it's long for our kids too. I have to be empathetic and sympathetic to that too. A lot of it, yes, it is just waiting for growth to happen. You can get upset. You can get stressed about it. You can fight about it all you want. And you're still not going to get there any more quickly. That's great. I hope you're going to use that clip somewhere. Um, I hope so too. That's just, I wish I, I, I need you to beam yourself back to, you know, my past self 12 years ago um, to hear that because I do, there's this sort of, you know, phrase like, why, aren't, why can't it be more like your sister? Well, obviously I only had boys, but that I do think there's this sense that we can all fall into, like there's something wrong with you um, yes. when it's really just these natural developmental differences. And I think that's a good parent, that's a parenting thing generally, but I think particularly with boys, and I, I really worry that what's happening is as girls are just doing much better in school, for the reasons we've already identified, they're just better equipped for it, honestly, then it makes boys seem like they're failing even more. Like, and, and we're sort of metaphorically kind of shaking them and saying, what's wrong with you? Uh, and what's wrong the boys, with them is that there are dimorphic trajectories of brain development. <laughs> I think the boys internalize a lot of that too. When you are surrounded by a lot of girls who are doing well and a lot of boys who aren't, you sort of think, well, I guess we just suck. And that's not very, um, that's, that's not very nicely spoken, but that's how the boys think sometimes. And I, I personally feel like this feeds into some of the things that we then happen they sort of stop trying and well why would I yeah well I think that I mean it's a good opportunity to talk about the way in which certain things become gendered mm -hmm. right? that becomes a girly thing or a boyish thing or whatever language you want to use um, and one of my fears is the educational success is starting to be seen as somewhat feminine and that you reach yes. a tipping point where it's like we're already at 60% of students are, are, are girls, 76% of teachers are women. Um, I've just uh, tweeted today a GPA chart showing that among the top GPA scorers in high school, two thirds are girls, which means if you start dropping SAT and ACT in college admissions and relying on GPA, then the gender gap will get bigger and so on. But, you know, the boys, if they look around them and they see the girls just outperforming them, on average, on pretty much every educational measure, then it's easy to start coming to the conclusion that educational success is for them 
and not for us. But I think the same is true too in the labor market. And one of the other things that, that I talk a bit about is the, the gendered nature of certain professions. And we, let's talk this, about uh, that because was, there has been such a push, um, you know, listeners, you know, this, you, you see it and you hear it happening in your schools and communities as well. There's been a massive push in recent years um, to get more girls and women into STEM jobs science, technology, engineering, math. There has also been a push of more women are involved in traditional blue collar jobs, you know, things like like plumbing and carpentry and auto mechanics, all those kinds of things. And that is very well accepted in most segments of society right now. And yet there has not been an equivalent push to get boys and men into what you term heal jobs, H-E-A-L. Tell our listeners what you mean. Yeah, so uh, the way to think about heal is almost as a mirror mirror image to STEM, uh, which you've already described. Uh, So heal jobs are those that are in the health sector or education or are more around administration and which require literacy skills. So the L is the equivalent of the M for math skills in STEM. And so I've done some work kind of defining that category and then looking at the gender composition of them. And what we see is that in STEM, we have seen an increase in number of women in STEM from about 8%, 1970 rather, to 27% now. And so there's been a big increase. We're certainly not at 50-50 yet. And there are some areas where there's still a lot further to go. I'd point to engineering and technology as examples. Uh, science, we've done amazingly well. Actually, most scientists now are women in the US. So there's been an extraordinary success there. And then outside of STEM, it's just worth mentioning that the other highly gendered professions like law, and medicine uh, are now are now tilting majority female, which is just kind of an extraordinary shift. I mean, when was the last time you heard someone say female lawyer? What do you mean? That would be still a weird thing to say, whereas, you know, it wasn't that long ago where it was a tiny proportion of lawyers. Mm-hmm. But in HEAL, we've seen, if anything, a, a reduction in the number of men in those jobs. The percentage of HEAL jobs being done by men has actually fallen. Uh, it was in the 30% something, and it's now down to 26% and falling. And I think that's a huge problem. We see particularly big, big drops in social work, psychology, mental health generally, in Hmm. teaching. So back to kind of Janet's world, it's now 76% of K-12 teachers are now women, and that's rising. Only one in 10 elementary school teachers are men. And there are essentially no early years uh, men uh, teaching in early years. In fact, and I was looking at the numbers, it's, it's hard. The numbers are so small, it's hard to get a good number, but say 2%, right? 2% of early educators are men, roughly. And that's, that's a very low number. For illustration, there are at least twice as many women now flying US military planes as there are men teaching kindergarten. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that whilst I would, I'm very happy to have more women flying fighter jets. I want the best. Honestly, I just want whoever's best at flying the jet, right? right. Not going to be me, but whoever, whoever can shoot down the enemy, I don't care, right? But as a society, it seems to me to be much more important that in our classrooms, that actually we have more of a gender mix. And that gender inequality is, is just gone completely unremarked upon. Um, and not seen. And then clinic, and then take something like psychology, which has dropped from 39% male to 29% male just in the last 10 years. And it's going to grow. So if you look at psychologists under the age of 30, 95% of them are women. So roll that forward. And you and, and same in school psychologists, mm-hmm, school mm-hmm, counselors, mm-hmm. Janet will know this. And that matters for a few reasons. But the two big ones are one, there's a lot of jobs coming. Yes. In, in those areas. A huge, I reckon there's going to be for every one new STEM job, there are going to be three new heel jobs. We have massive shortages 
in some of these professions like teaching and nursing. There are nursing, massive nursing shortages is- right now. I mean, you don't know this yeah. yet. Um, I came to writing from nursing. That's my professional yeah. background. And I still do a lot of writing about nursing. I also do a lot of writing about education. I am very scared by the shortages that are already occurring in nursing and projected to get worse and in education. So there is tremendous need. And I'm gonna complicate things for a moment because I think this is all interrelated. What I see as somebody who's worked in these spaces, our country, and and maybe a lot of the Western world, there has been such a massive and traditional devaluing of care work, any work we have considered caring. So these professions that got considered female we're not as invested in, we're not paid as well. You know, it becomes this, this whole thing. And now here we are, we need nurses, we need teachers, we need psychologists. We have men and boys who will need jobs. And oh, by the way, need teachers, need healthcare, mm-hmm. need mental health care. It's really past time to take action, but we could start now. <laughs> yeah, we could. And and I think that the, I mean, those are the great points. And and I think this the mismatch between the provider and the kind of use of these services is really what's one of the things that's, that's worried me. And it's obvious in teaching, but but you see it in social care, for example. I mean, if if you're a, a guy and you, and you need care and some of that care is quite physically intimate and so on, too, it's not crazy to think that for some of that you might prefer a guy to do it. In and the same way, many of us women enjoy being prefer- able to choose a female physician for some yes. of our care. Yeah, and certainly for things like you know washing, help with washing and bathing and that sort of stuff. I mean, that's like this is quite um, you know, very intimate stuff, and yet can eighty five percent of carers um, are women. And then in schools, most special needs uh, teachers are women, and it's become increasingly female. But most kids who who are labeled as need of special needs are boys. Most substance abuse counselors are women, but most people refer to substance abuse counselors are men and so on and so on. And so I do think there's just a problem in terms of like how we how we serve. But then also we have these labor shortages you've just referred to. But it feels to me like we're trying to solve those shortages with half the workforce and that consideration of getting more men in um, is rarely given. And when I think about the billions, it's hard to get an exact number, but dollars that have been spent trying to encourage women into STEM. Great work. I totally support it. And it's been quite successful. We spend nothing on trying to get men into heel, no scholarships, no subsidies, no marketing mm-hmm. campaigns, no role models, no, no, nothing on no Instagram campaigns, et cetera. Uh, and so I just think that we, we owe it to ourselves and to our kids to make a huge investment in helping get men into those growing jobs of the future, both for their own sake and the sake of the um, professions and for the sake of the boys and men who are using those services. And I agree with you, Jennifer, that part of this, I'll complicate it even further. One of the reasons that women might choose these professions is because they seem more more flexible and therefore more compatible with family responsibilities. And so we go round and round in circles here because the truth is we need men to step up more on the home front and do more of the family work. And so that's a good reason now for men to take it. That would also perhaps slightly affect the devaluation of that work. To the extent that it's seen as women's work, and that's a difficult question to answer empirically and therefore devalued. Well, getting more men would be great. I don't know if there were more male teachers, if teachers would have had a pay rise in the last 20 years, because K-12 teachers haven't had a pay rise in the last 12, yeah. 20 years, 20 years. I don't know. Um, there's some evidence suggests maybe a little bit, but either way, teachers need a pay rise. And if well, that helps us of- attract more men, great. 
one of the things that you pointed out, I believe you have at least one son that's been involved, uh, you know, professionally in childcare and mm-hmm. in education. And he, uh, like I have a brother who has been in childcare and education, you encounter this stigma where mm-hmm. there are some people who are not comfortable with a man in a nurturing role with a child because the presumption is that the child is at risk of sexual abuse. Yeah. And it's, of course, it's one of these classic vicious cycles because the more you make it a female only profession, the less likely the men are, want, are going to want to go into it, which means that it is somewhat more likely, just statistically, that of those men who do choose to go into it, a slightly higher proportion will actually be abusive. And I think there is some evidence for that. But overwhelming amount of abuse, of course, is perpetrated by women in those settings because they are mostly women, right? So, so it's an absolute risk. If you've got 20 child carers in your kid's child care provision or wherever it is, right? And one of them's a man and 19 of them are a woman, much more likely that they're going to be abused by one of the women, right? Just statistically. But, but per man, there might be a slightly higher risk. But what do we expect if we stigmatize these, these guys so strongly and we might think there's something wrong with them, then of course they're not going to go into those professions. And it means that you get a disproportionate share, albeit tiny, I don't know if it's a tiny proportion. And so then you can get statistics saying that on average, men in those professions are a little bit more likely to be abusive than women. But you've selected for that. That's our very. Fault. It's very hard to... Um, consider statistics of things that haven't happened. So there are all the the risks and downsides that come when there are no men in childcare. You know, there is what children lose out on by not having those caring, nurturing interactions. What's the counterfactual? What's the opportunity cost? What's lost as well as what's gained? And again, it's almost back to where we started, the ability to think two thoughts at once, to recognize costs and benefits and so on too. And, And actually just to sort of take a bit of a step back from some of these general moral panics that we're having on on all sides and just look at these issues in the round and just say we have a lot of boys and men who are really struggling that's because of structural changes that are happening around them it's not because there's something wrong with them it's not their fault it's not we shouldn't let's not get into victim blaming but actually as a responsible society and as responsible leaders and parents uh, we, we should we should address those challenges because if we don't they'll fester and if we don't address them they won't go away they'll just get weaponized by you know forces that we might not welcome and and so it's just for me it's a test of our responsibility as parents community leaders institutional leaders but ultimately as political leaders too because this has been a, a massive period of change for boys and men and not addressing some of the downsides of those changes is just irresponsible. And if we don't do it, it won't end well. So I think we can take a lot of hope from the fact that we as a culture made so much progress towards gender equity for females since, let's just say from the seventies forward. And I know it's been longer than that, but let's just say the last 50 years, it goes to show that we can do this. We can address cultural and structural inequities. We can look back and say it took um, it took uprisings of people. It took people saying, hey, this isn't right. This isn't fair. It took massive governmental investments. It took public policy. It took massive um, private investments, philanthropic investments. Those of us who are raising boys now, who are concerned about boys, who are listening what role can we play to get this rolling forward for our sons and for the future? 
Well, I think you've just set out the the problem, but also the promise of this moment incredibly well. I mean, we can see incredibly rapid changes. I'm I'm thinking at the moment about changes in attitudes towards same-sex marriage, which is a slightly obviously a different issue. But as we as we record this, there's a bill uh, that actually is almost certain to pass the Senate with 60 votes, which would codify same-sex marriage into law with Republican support. And it passed the House with 47 Republicans. <laughs> so it just showed, I mean, that's incredibly rapid social change, but these deep social, cultural and economic changes we've seen really fueled by the women's movement were the result, you're right, of people doing various things. One is challenging stereotypes, gender stereotypes in both directions, challenging the idea there are some things that are, that are you know, only boys and men can do and vice versa, some things that only girls and women can do risking being unpopular in some cases, going against the grain. I mean, many of the feminist leaders really did have to kind of risk saying things that were uncomfortable. There are uncomfortable truths, they say all of that, but also with the spirit that I think animated the very best of the women's movement, which is one of, we want everyone to flourish. We want to open doors for everybody. We want a world in which all of us, men, women, girls, boys, can kind of just can rise regardless of race and color and so on. It was a liberation movement. And that spirit of liberation it's just one that we need now to apply to boys and men too, because they are being left behind in many cases. They are lost. Uh, they are struggling. And so we take that spirit of liberation and optimism and opportunity and apply it to our boys and men in our personal lives and more generally too. And I, I think we can, we can really start a movement uh, that can learn from the women's movement on behalf of boys and men that is not competitive with feminism, but complementary to it. And then, and then we'll get what I think the movement always promised which is real equality for everyone. Which will make family easier, which will make education better. There's so much good on the other side. We are in a moment of transition. We are in a moment of change. It's hard. It's messy. Moms who are listening, I think we have a massive role to play in this. In the cultural moment right now, I think and Richard, correct me if you think that I'm wrong. I think in many places, it's easier and better accepted for a woman to say, we need to pay attention to and help the boys and men than for men and boys to lead that charge right now. I, I think that's right. I think in just the same way that in some ways, it's very often more useful if it's men who are kind yeah. of making some of the case for women's rights or, you know, pay, you know, I argue very strongly for issues like paid leave in my own institution and so on too, uh, for men as well as for women. Um, because otherwise I think the danger of someone saying, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? Yes. Um, is ever present. And so I, I agree with you. I think in just the same way that whilst clearly women were at the forefront of the women's movement and needed to be, they also needed some, they needed men to get on board with that program. And so at a personal level, I think mom's hugely important because the messages they send to their boys just on an everyday basis yeah. about what it means to be a boy um, and just that couldn't be more important uh, going forward, but also just to join arms with other moms and with dads in, in a movement that is pro-male and pro-boy without without ceasing to be pro-female and pro-girl. And I, I, I get honestly, given where we are at the top of our society right now in politics, I think this will have to be bottom up. But I feel it. I, I think it's coming. Even amongst the most liberal mums I know, they're really worried about their sons. Yes. They think this is an issue. They do not want to abandon any of their commitments to uh, equality. 
but I think they're ready. I think they're ready to say, okay, we've got to a point now where we can safely tackle these, these issues on behalf of boys and men. And also, frankly, where we should be worried if we don't. You know, this is, a, this is a moment, I think, a bit of a pivotal moment, because if we don't address these issues, then I think there's a danger that they will curdle for many men uh, and many of our boys and men. And we don't want to lose them. We can't afford to lose them. Richard's book is Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It get this book, even if you do not read every word. And I, I recommend that you do because it is interesting. It is engaging. But even if you don't, he has done all the research. He has all the statistics laid out here, all of the facts that you can use to marshal your discussions and arguments um, with policymakers, with other parents, with schools. Facts are very, very powerful. And he's got them all right here for you. Richard, are you doing um, are you doing some talks and other presentations as you're promoting this book? Where can people find out more? Yeah, well, obviously the book itself is a great place to start. Thank you for that. Um, I've just started up a, a Substack, which is called of, of Boys and Men. So Yay. Um, a weekly newsletter where I'll be sharing some of this material going forward. Um, and, and yeah, there's a couple of events coming up at Brookings. People can check out my website, which is Richard V. Reeves. Uh, .com. Uh, they can also go to the Brookings Institution and check out our Boys and Men project there um, for more details on this, where there's, there's a bunch of stuff coming up over the next uh, you know, uh, few months. But I will also say that I've decided to make this my main research agenda for the next two or three years. I, you know, This is not one of those books that I'm going to put out there and then move on. I, I really do think that these issues uh, warrant sustained and careful attention. And so this is this is me for the next two or three years. Or as a friend of mine put it, well, if you're going to go out on a limb, you might as well stay there for a bit and hope it doesn't get sawn off. <laughs> we are here <laughs> to prop then. you up. We have been on the limb for a long time and we yes, are just going to continue to prop gonna, it up. I'm following you out onto the limb and sitting there with you. <laughs> Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you for your work of boys and men. Get this book and share it with others. Thanks, Richard. Thank you both. Thank you both. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Richard Reeves. Wow. He has a lot to share. Important, important, vital action steps that we need to take to support our men and boys so that we can all be truly equal. Thank you so much for being our listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend. And don't forget, Jennifer has that Building Boys Bulletin. She combs through the news every week and breaks it down, presents it so concisely that it is just a valuable resource each and every Monday morning. Go to buildingboys.net and click the subscribe button. This is the On Boys Parenting Podcast. We are your co-hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net and Janet Allison of boysalive.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.